Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History and welcome back to our section on objects from history, 100 bloody objects. What, Jamie, have you got for us today? Object number 18, Tom. A skull. Desperate retreats. A road much travelled. Well, we're going to discuss the contentious issue of going backwards in war. And no, we're not just talking about certain nations driving tanks with ten reverse gears. We're talking about retreat, generally a bad thing, and withdrawal, sometimes not such a bad thing. As Demosthenes first put it, sometimes you need to live to fight another day. And we've seen leaders turn disaster into triumph with some deft words. Rourke's drift, the evacuation of Dunkirk, and so on come to mind. The US General Smith coined perhaps the best term when describing a military reverse ferret at the Chosim Reservoir retreat by UN forces in the early stages of the Korean War in 1950. General MacArthur ordered him to retreat, and his reply, Retreat? Hell, we're not retreating, we're just advancing in the wrong direction. It's a known feature in war that the time of highest danger for men in battle is if they retreat and the retreat turns into a rout. Many of the great massacres in battle begin with a disordered group of soldiers running from the battlefield, as happened in 1416 at the Battle of Towton, the greatest slaughter of men on English soil. Today we'll look at four categories of retreat. Deliverance, the embarrassing retreat, arduous and catastrophic. Remembering Churchill's line in his great Dunkirk speech, wars are not won by evacuation. However, a successful withdrawal can allow those men to live to fight another day. Jamie, before we get into the four categories we've discussed, let's just have a general chat about what goes on when you have a disastrous retreat. Is it fight or flight? It very much depends on that situation. As you said in your introduction, Tom, it can be a tactical readjustment or it can be strategic failure. As Churchill said, it can be the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end. You you never know um, at that particular moment what the ramifications are going to be. What you can be sure of is that those who get it in the neck, those who suffer the highest casualties, are those guarding the retreat, mounting the rearguard action, those trying to slow the enemy so that there can be some kind of ordered withdrawal. And you can see that all the way from Napoleon's retreat from Moscow or the retreat of the Allies from Dunkirk. It's these small unit actions that, that so often enter folklore, enter legend. So in 1842, and we'll come on to this, but in 1842 you had the withdrawal of the British forces from Kabul and who entered legend there but the 44th foot and their 45 men mounting their last stand against the tribesmen who are attacking them uh, on their way back 
to try and get British forces out. So you can see that happening. You, you can see it in the engineers who dived into the water to, to, to create bridges and pontoons for Napoleon's forces to get across the river so that they can get across, so and their emperor could get across. Uh, you could see it in uh, Dunkirk. And again, those small unit actions were extraordinary. The sacrifices were extraordinary as the Brits tried to, to collapse their positions and mount this withdrawal to the beaches uh, so that their troops, the bulk of their troops, could get away. So the two massacres that, that one remembers are essentially the, the massacre of 97 Royal Norfolk Regiment troops who were machine-gunned by the SS Totenkopf Division men um, at, at a place called Le Paradis. Uh, it was horrendous, and only two men got away, and uh, no one believed them that there had been this massacre. No one could believe that just you know, a few miles from Britain across the Channel, there were these sort of atrocities taking place. And that was on the 27th of May, 1940. A day later, on May the 28th, 1940, uh, up to 100 men were herded into a milking shed by members of the SS Leibstandarter Division. And they were from the Royal Warwickshire Regiment, Royal Cheshires and Royal Artillery. And grenades were thrown in and then they were finished off with pistols and knives. And again, there were, there were a few survivors. In both these cases, Le Paradis and Wormhout, you had the Wehrmacht, the regular army, finding the survivors and actually looking after them, taking them into captivity. But it was the SS who were driving forward and causing this destruction and not dealing with prisoners of war in a cor correct fashion. But the same was visited upon the Germans as they fled from Russia um, at the end of the Second World War. And, and it was a common Soviet practice to what they call iron enemy forces, to, to go over both their trenches and flatten them on the roads and just, just crush them under the tracks of T-34 tanks. Do you think, Jamie, in a more general sense, that one of the difficulties with withdrawals, retreats, route, routes, is that troops train to attack and win, to go forward, and they don't... The idea of training and practising a retreat slightly goes against the whole point of being in the army, pushing forward and capturing an objective. And... On top of that, because clearly some armies do train, and, and certainly, you know, units will train how to fall back from a position. But in addition to it being something that isn't a very positive thing to do, it's also one of the hardest things to do well. It's very difficult to do in an ordered fashion. Yes, we saw Russian forces managing to extricate from the Kherson region, but partly that was successful because the Ukrainians, having lost men and, and, and armour uh, pushing forwards, they didn't really want to get into a scrap for no reason. They would rather force the Russians away from that area without losses. So it's a different sort of campaign to what the Ukrainians are now mounting in Bakhmut, you know, holding 
positions and fighting street by street in the centre and, and trying to withdraw in a line. That's extremely difficult to do with urban warfare. But, but they're doing it in order to soak up the Russians, create casualties and make sure the Russians are eventually encircled uh, by the flanks that are still held by the Ukrainians. So, the, as we, we said, you know, there are different forms of re retreat and withdrawal. And, uh, but to do it in an ordered fashion is very tricky. Right, Jamie, well, let's get on into the different categories of retreats. And the first section, deliverance, is where you have a situation where victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat, or at least the defeat is not complete. Well, let's go back to the, the time of, of the Greeks and um, BC 401. Yeah, it's not a bad place to start because this shows that, that defeat can be turned into a sort of readjustment, this, this ability to get away. And, and the Spartans, what had happened, there were 10,000 of them and they were being used as mercenaries. They loved to punch up. They had been employed by Prince Cyrus of the Persians had gone all the way to Mesopotamia, long way, you know, 1,700 miles. Yeah, Babylon. Yeah, over to Babylon to fight uh, for Prince Cyrus against King Artaxerxes of, of the Persians. And it was a huge battle. I mean, you're talking about a force of 100,000 men. Uh, the, the Spartans had 10,000. That's a lot of Spartans. I mean, that's a lot of troops. And they saw it really as a way of, of sticking it to the Persian Empire. They were constantly threatened by the Persians. They were worried about the Persians. So, so, so it's the, 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 the Greeks um, made up about 10% of the invading force of Prince Cyrus's. That's right. Them they, fighting against the Persians. That, that's right. Equivalent number. And, and they were on the flank. Unfortunately, they won their action. They, they held steady. And they had the discipline that so few other forces had. But unfortunately, the rest of the army were defeated. Osiris was killed. So the Spartans were given the choice. They could have surrendered, and they chose not to. It wasn't the sort of thing the Spartans did. So they decided to, to head back to Thrace. And, and so they, they mounted this incredible expedition, um, incredibly arduous. And, and this is the one thing. We, we, we've divided things into four categories, but, but it's slightly false in that there's so many aspects of, of all those sections in every single kind of retreat. And this was particularly arduous, but it was also one of total deliverance. And what's salutary about this and sobering and, and a lesson for so many others is that you can improvise and you can maintain your discipline and one of the things that the Spartans did is that they they didn't have cavalry but they did have cart horses uh, pulling their goods and their supplies so what they did is they turned those 50 cart horses they had with them into cavalry so they had at least a mobile reconnaissance and shock force that they used to great effect and the enemy never quite knew what they were facing or where they would be hit and and with those sorts of assets and with that sort of discipline the spartans made it back to the coast yeah and so ultimately when they arrived at the black sea um they were delighted so much so that the the, the greeks in front were shouting with glee and the ones at the back thought they were under 
attack, but once they'd sorted themselves out, um, they essentially made it. Um, and one of the things that it achieved was a feeling amongst the Greek, the different Greek city-states, that the Persians weren't invincible, that the Persian Empire wasn't something that they should fear. That's right. And later on, of course, the, 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 the Spartans and, and the Greek states did manage to, to stick it to the Persians and, and cause a lot of problems. And you, you had, obviously, the great battles of Thermopylae and other, other battles that, that really showed that Greece could stand up and, and that Athenian democracy, for example, could, could survive uh, against the, the, these hordes from Persia. And as we um, said in our introduction from Demosthenes, his, um, this is very much an example of live to fight another day. Exactly. And, and, and it shows that if you maintain this discipline and you're pointing in the right direction, away from the threat, you can actually hold things together and get your people to safety. One of the most famous treats in a war was the retreat from Moscow by Napoleon's army in 1812. And there are two sides to look at this. One is obviously the French, but first we'd like to look at it from the Russian point of view in this section under deliverance. Yeah, there were two great retreats and with two very different outcomes during that campaign. You mentioned Napoleon taking his army 600,000 strong in June 1812, and heading all the way towards Moscow, thinking he would make this great capture. No different, really, to what Hitler believed all those years later, and with his invasion. And what happened, just like the withdrawal by Stalin of, of Soviet forces when Hitler invaded, it allowed the Russians to regroup. And it was the Russian retreat at this stage that was really the deliverance of Russia. There was that great battle on the 7th of September, 1812, Borodino. You had 160,000 Russians facing 130,000 French. It was pretty catastrophic for the Russians. They lost 70,000 men. But the one thing the Russians had aplenty was manpower. Um, by the time that Napoleon's forces reached Moscow, in September, mid-September 1812, he only had, well, under 100,000 men with him. Many had died on the way, many were pickets along the route, many were sort of trying to guard the lines of supply. And this is always the problem with any invading army. The longer the lines of supply, the lines of communication, the more vulnerable they become to partisan activity and attack by other armies. And so, the Russians had um, destroyed any foodstuffs, food supplies uh, in country on their route. Yes, and uh, uh, you know, later we'll talk about Napoleon's withdrawal. But by this stage, he thought he could winter in Moscow. But he gets to Moscow, and a few days later, explosions and fires break out around the city. And this is a city that has been completely depopulated. A city of 400,000 ends up with only 2% of the civilian population uh, left inside. And the Russians took this extraordinary decision to just get out of the city and destroy it and remove any stores, any shelter, for Napoleon. So Napoleon sort of faced this appalling choice. You know, did he stay around? 
did he wait for delegations, this constant sort of peace negotiations with the Russians, with the Tsar, you know, to, to, to see whether anything could come of it, or did he get out? And it was in the interest of the Russians having to retreated to, to basically extend the negotiations and see the French uh, supplies dwindle, see them starve or see them freeze to death. So the Russians made this extraordinary decision to get out. And it was that decision to retreat that allowed Russian armies to stay intact, to essentially encircle the French position and ensure that the French, when they left, couldn't head south, couldn't start a new uh, line of withdrawal that would allow the French to get sort of supplies on the way. It forced the French to go back exactly the same way they had come, through their line of advance, and that had been obliterated uh, and burnt by the Russian forces. And so there were no crops to be had, no villages to raid, no supplies to be had. And that was the start of the appalling French retreat. It's said that one of the reasons why Winston Churchill was unpopular before the Second World War was his handling of the Dardanelles campaign in the First World War in 1915. And by towards the end of 1915, it was decided that really they had to get out. And that isn't surprising, Tom. It was the most spectacular disaster. But you can see why Churchill and others came up with this plan. You know, they wanted to teach the Turks a lesson, knock them out of the war, take Istanbul. And they genuinely believed that mounting this indirect approach, mounting this flanking operation of taking the Dardanelles would knock Turkey out of the war and therefore take the pressure off Russia that, that was the ally of Britain during the Great War. And Turkey was obviously an ally of Germany. If you take them out of the war, then Germany is far more isolated and it's far harder to mount an effective operation. And so they went in in April, they mounted this vast landing in April 1915. It was a truly massive operation. Uh, the Brits, the Australians and New Zealanders had 345,000 troops out there. They landed essentially in two locations, north and south, and Anzac Bay, Suvla Bay, became notorious for the, the casualties that the Anzac troops, the Australians and New Zealanders took. Uh, the Brits penetrated about five miles inland. The Australians and New Zealanders actually did better. But it was such close fighting. I mean, the, the trenches were often just yards apart. And each side took massive casualties. And in the end, you know, 45,000 Brits died. Um, about 15,000 Anzacs died. There were huge casualties in terms of dysentery, fever, all the things that, that go together when you have troops in a location, there's poor sanitation, um, poor supplies, lack of food, and the heat and the flies and the mosquitoes. It, it was it, dreadful, dreadful conditions. And so it was decided, again, once Bulgaria had entered the war on the side of Germany, you had the possibility of this, this corridor, this land corridor between Turkey and Germany, which would have made things even trickier 
for Russia and for the Allies. So it was just decided, you know what, that this, that this is going to be an impossible situation and Britain and its allies are going to be essentially cut off in the Black Sea. So this decision to retreat came about and it was an amazing feat of logistics. It took place in December to January, uh, early January 1916 and they managed to get their forces off. One of the things that happened was that the deception involved in that operation, this, this attempt to collapse the front, given how close the trenches were to the Turks, uh, this attempt to fool the Turks into believing that we weren't retreating, because had they known, they would have mounted a massive offensive and there would have been far greater casualties. So they came up with a few clever schemes, including a cricket match, which was a distraction, and perhaps most uh, unusually, something called the drip rifle. Yes, that was Lance Corporal William Scurry, an Australian soldier who came up with the plan. It, it, it was a very simple device, but, but like a lot of simple devices, hugely effective. There was a can of water balanced on top of the rifle, it had holes in it, depending on how quickly you wanted the water to, to drain away. It dripped into a can below the rifle, hanging on to the trigger uh, by a piece of string. And as the can below got heavier, eventually it pulled the trigger and it fired. So you could, you could essentially change the time and and have a timing device, a simple timing device on all these rifles. So the Turks thought they were being fired at constantly and that the Anzac troops were, were in position all the time, that they weren't actually there. They had abandoned their trenches. And it was hugely effective. And, and that's really one of the great reasons that so many lives were saved, that the, the Anzacs managed to get off those beaches over five days with, with barely a casualty. Montgomery's great plan, Operation Market Garden, to take the, the bridges so that the um, Allies could get into Germany wasn't a success by the end, and therefore there were a number of troops that were caught on the wrong side of the Rhine. So often our, our military failures become feats of individual heroism, and Operation Market Garden is is no different. I mean, it was a, a catastrophic plan in the end. You know, this idea of sending uh, lightly armed airborne troops into an area where they were hugely vulnerable to counterattack, particularly by German armour. And this is what happened. And out of 10,000 troops, most of those didn't get back, but there were remnants and they had to be exfiltrated across the Rhine under incredibly difficult conditions. And this was a plan, Operation Berlin, to get them back across the Rhine uh, before the Germans could close in on them. And out of those 10,000 original men from the 1st Airborne Division, 2,400 survivors were shuttled across in 150 boatloads by the Royal Engineers on that night of the 25th, 26th of September. It, it was an amazingly brave operation. And you know, seven Royal Engineers were killed. 
And they managed to do it under the noses of the Germans. There was heavy German fire, but it was difficult for, for the Germans to get a bead on the target. And those men were you know, spirited away. And so it was truly an act of deliverance. Uh, a month later, there was an even more secretive operation because there were men hiding out, uh, you know, in Dutch houses. It was extraordinarily risky for the Dutch civilians and the Dutch resistance members who sheltered them and for the paras who were hiding. So Operation Pegasus was put in train. It was organised by Airy Neve, who was head of MI9. You remember the famous section that was there to run the escape networks for downed airmen. It was there to spirit away the 138 survivors that, that were still left. And so they sent small craft across. They sent their agents across. Uh, one of the things they managed to do for some time was was, was listen to... German telephone communications because the the Dutch telephone networks were still operating so so they managed to use those and they managed to uh, get their agents across and get those people back and so that was one of the great coups of MI9 so you know out of that group of 10,000 you know yes only about a quarter uh, got back but, but it was still a deliverance for those survivors who, who managed to get away and, and fight another day. And the whole show was, was a, a very typical example of how something that really didn't work and wasn't a success and mission was not accomplished, and yet many myths and legends about heroism and great individual ability and uh, clever schemes came out of that story. So, it, it, you know, it's still told with pride today, a story which was ultimately the opposite of a, of a victory. Well, <laughs> a, a, again, like the Spartans, those centuries before, that, that improvisation and using techniques that they had learnt, you know, the fact that those escape networks, those escape lines were already being used, those techniques were being used by MI9 and by MI6, um, in in occupied territories, uh, you know that really came into use. That that really was so useful in in getting people out. There were many battles and events in the First World War, but right at the beginning of the war, when the British first came into contact with the Germans, was the Battle of Mons starting on the 23rd of August, 1914. And that essentially started not only with a great battle, but with a very arduous retreat, 200-mile retreat, all the way back to the Marne. Why did the British have to retreat? Well, Tom, you know what I'm about to say, because the French decided to retreat and the, the right flank collapsed because the French Fifth Army uh, withdrew. Uh, without telling the British, I might add. Uh, so, of course, we see this repeated uh, later uh, during the Second World War, of course, that led to the uh, retreat from Dunkirk as well, and the legend of the small boats and small ships from, from Dunkirk. But, but at Mons, what happened is that this amazing fighting retreat occurred. It, it took place over several days. Uh, the, the battle itself started in late August, it lasted two days. 
And so the Brits had to retreat. They had to withdraw. But they mounted a very effective um, defence all the way back. And we mentioned right at the start this, this idea of the rearguard actions, the, the holding the line. And all the way back to the Marne, you see these small unit actions. And there were a lot of Victoria Crosses won uh, during this period. You, you see Victoria Crosses uh, won at Nimi to stop the Germans getting across the bridge there. You, you saw the amazing action of L Detachment, Royal Horse Artillery, one gun remaining. And the gunners there managed to hold up a German division for two and a half days. Victoria Cross is one there. I mean, all the way back, you got these, these extraordinary acts of heroism that allowed the bulk of the British army, you know, having put up very stiff resistance and caused the Germans a lot of casualties uh, during the Battle of the Mons, you, you, you see this sort of, uh, these small unit actions all the way back to the Marne. But what it demonstrates also is that this was a withdrawal. It was not a rout and that there was a planned uh, move back where soldiers would fold over others and then face the enemy and give, give time for people to, to move backwards. Yes, and it was a professional army. You know, this, this was the period of, of, of professional troops, the British Expeditionary Force. So it was b before the, the, the time of cons conscripts. And, you know, we talk about deliverance. One of the legends of the, the, the retreat from Mons was, of course, the Angel of Mons. And this was actually witnessed by a great aunt of mine who was a nurse, uh, who, who worked on the Western Front, and she actually witnessed it and, and absolutely swears that, that, that it was true, what people saw. And, of course, people see what they want to believe. But there was this extraordinary apparition, this, this idea, the, the, the clouds forming to create the shape of an angel blowing a double trumpet, and it, it ended up um, being put on the Mons medal. This this was really the thing that summarised the Mons. So if you're talking about deliverance, you can talk about sort of divine deliverance as well. But once that retreat, once that deliverance had occurred, you then got the Battle of the Marne. And that is what created, that's what blunted the, the German approach on Paris. That's what created the start of the trench system and the stalemate and the trench warfare that occurred for the next several years till 1918. So, so you know, the retreat from Mons was very significant in the story of the Great War. But we have it down in this section embarrassing. Why is that? Because it was embarrassing. It was an embarrassing retreat. And, uh, you know, it, 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 although it was a deliverance, it was also embarrassing for the British. It was certainly, if they have a sense of embarrassment, uh, embarrassing for the French. And it, it, it was embarrassing because it was a, a, a tactical blow to the British position, to the British military position. And you know, you know, things tend to be embarrassing when there are political ramifications. You know, it, it, it was certainly a blow to morale and a blow to Britain's military standing. You know, we, we talked about uh, armies not liking to retreat and we certainly didn't like the, the, the sort of forward defence being pushed back 200 miles. I mean, that was a, a very significant factor in, in how the, the war would pan out in the coming years. 
Well, I think that uh, gives uh, quite a good example of how these things don't fit into neat categories. So it was both a deliverance and embarrassing. And arduous, of course. <laughs> and arduous, yes. Um, something that really was embarrassing was the fall of Singapore in 1942. When Churchill was talking about a city, he said it had been the scene of the greatest disaster to British arms, which our history records. What was he referring to? He was, of course, referring to the taking and surrender of Singapore. It was a terrible blow and an embarrassing blow to the British Empire, to British prestige, to the British war effort. Uh, Singapore had always been considered a very formidable uh, fortress, a very difficult nut to crack. And so, you know, when the Japanese got to Malaya and hopped down the Malayan Peninsula, they bypassed a lot of Allied forces. And you're talking 85,000 Allied troops versus about 35,000 Japanese troops. So on paper, you would have thought that the Brits and its allies were in a strong position to hold off the Japanese. But one of the problems was that the, 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 the Brits had always believed that the attack would not come down the Malayan Peninsula, but would come from the sea. So for a start, their large guns, their heavy guns, were, were pointing out to sea, uh, ready to stave off a naval invasion. Uh, and that never happened. It, the, the, it simply came from behind, and they, they were not expecting that. When it was all over, the Japanese captured 80,000 of the 85,000 went into captivity. Um, and they treated everyone from the generals down to private soldiers appallingly. Yes, and people forget the, the sort of details of what happened in Singapore. The fact the Japanese went into the hospitals, bayoneted all the patients, the doctors, the nurses. There was that famous atrocity where they murdered all the Australian nurses that, that we've mentioned before. And the civilians that were marched off and the military that marched off to, to places like Changi Jail, you know, they marched past you know, up to 50,000 heads on spikes. And these were Chinese civilians that the Japanese had simply butchered. So, so the level of atrocity was, was absolutely terrible. And if you look at the uh, treatment of British prisoners of war, even captured British generals, such as General Heath, uh, were treated in a barbaric fashion. They, they were made to, uh, and this was simply on a daily basis, they were made to bow even to, to Japanese privates. They, they were uh, beaten relentlessly. General Heath uh, was forced to become a goat herd and was beaten constantly. And there was a great deal of torture. There was terrible starvation. And I've said it to you before, my father um, was in the first group to relieve Changi Jail. The average weight of the prisoners was about 85, 86 pounds. And, you know, so many of those 80,000 prisoners of war that were taken, uh, the military prisoners of war that were taken, they ended up, of course, working on the Burma Railway and, and suffering terrible hardships um, during that time. And an, and a side note from this was that the commander of this uh, operation was known as the Tiger of Malaya, General Yamashita, 
Uh, he was a brilliant general in the way that he managed to get down the Malay Peninsula, but he was accused at the end of the war when he was captured of war crimes, especially what he'd done in the Philippines. And his defence was that he didn't know, as the man commanding hundreds of thousands of men, what the individual men were doing on the ground, and therefore he shouldn't be blamed for it. And the court decided that that wasn't the case, and as the overall commander, he was responsible, and he was hanged for his war crimes in 1946. And this has created something called the, the Yamashita Standard, which in war crimes trials is used today as a way for leaders of countries that are not able to avoid the consequences of torture, mutilation and murder uh, by their troops, the men serving under them. Yeah, so watch out Putin. Uh, and it, it sort of goes both ways. You know, people in, in lower ranks can't say they were just obeying orders and their commanders can't say they didn't know. So d denial of knowledge is no defence. And, and certainly at that time, the Japanese had a terrible reputation for barbarism and butchery. And they showed it against civilian populations, whether it was in Korea or in China, in Manchuria. And they showed it against prisoners of war because they believed that, that people should never be taken prisoner. You look at their uh, approach towards uh, ships that have been captured and crews that have been captured, and so often they tortured them to death, they made them run gauntlets along the decks of Japanese submarines and beat them to death on the way and pitched them over the side with bayonets or took them down into the submarine to torture them to death. The, the story of what the Japanese did. But in terms of the actual retreat down the Malayan Peninsula and the surrender of Singapore, there's no doubt that not only was it a, a, a terrible uh, strategic defeat for Britain, but it, it was fundamentally embarrassing and humiliating as well, and, and totally unexpected. The Vietnam was was a low point for the US military. And the image of a helicopter taking off from the US embassy in Saigon is very much part of that story. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about Operation Frequent Wind? Well, as President Ford said, it was a sad and tragic period in American affairs. It was it was a terrible period, and it, it was more than just an embarrassment. Uh, you know, we all know so much about the Vietnam War, but American troops had essentially left in March 1973, and it took two years for the North Vietnamese forces to essentially move in on the collapsing South Vietnam on the government there and that government was never going to survive it's it's you can see it years later in the Afghanistan of today you can't force a people you can't force a system um, on a country that doesn't accept it that doesn't want it you, you know that producing a sort of artificial construct is not going to survive and so it was in Vietnam and America had done its best, it had done its bit, but it came to this crunch and the collapse was faster than many imagined. The finale was chaotic, 
But at the same time, there was an extraordinary amount of individual bravery and heroism by U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force pilots. 50,000 Vietnamese were flown out in military aircraft and commercial aircraft. Uh, That was a big operation. The image that most people remember are the thousands being carried out from the defence attaché office and from the US embassy, that that roof of the US embassy. You know, I was age 12 at the time and I still vividly remember it. It, it, it was seared into, into one's uh, psyche and consciousness. And, you know, it, that became the prevailing view. And we, we, we're talking about embarrassing retreats. The long-term ramifications on US defense, security, and foreign policy were, were huge. And in the same way that US involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan made the US very wary of involvement in, in operations overseas, so this, this finale, this grand finale in Vietnam blighted US thinking for years to come. You know, it, 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 was, it was key. And why they chose frequent wind as a <laughs> as a title for that operation, uh, who knows? Um, but it sort of it sort of summarised things up pretty 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 well. And uh, you know, about five thousand people were carried off in helicopters, but but hundreds were left behind. The the, the tragedy was for for those left behind. But as a friend of mine who was based in in Vietnam for a long time said. You know, you wouldn't know that uh, the U.S. had lost the Vietnam War because, you know, today you have a a pretty resolute uh, capitalist society, albeit with a nominally communist uh, party uh, heading it. But but they're certainly very anti-Chinese and a bulwark against Chinese expansion in the area. And as seems to be the case in some of these, anyway, um, examples... The actual operation was extremely well run. Extremely well run. And just as the the, the flight from Afghanistan more recently was extremely well run, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't hugely embarrassing. It doesn't mean that the collapse wasn't extremely swift, partly because so many of the locals, so many of those who had, uh, one believed, supported the American-backed regime, uh, would stay loyal, but of course they they switch sides very quickly when they think that that things are changing. And seven billion dollars worth of U.S. equipment were left behind, and uh, the Bagram Air Base uh, was abandoned after twenty years without even informing the Afghan commander. And I don't think Biden told Boris. No, that's absolutely right. So so let's move on to Afghanistan. If it took. 700 flights almost in Operation Frequent Wind in in military aircraft flying out of Vietnam. It it took a hell of a lot more in those two weeks in August 2021 to get almost 123,000 Afghans out of Bagram Air Base to safety. I mean, it was an extraordinary operation. But it was still embarrassing and humiliating and will have long-term consequences. And probably was one of the reasons that, that Putin thought the West was weak and maybe, uh, you know, I, sh- I should invade Ukraine. I mean, you know, so these things do have consequences. They do have a knock-on effect. But 
you mentioned the, the, the equipment, the billions of dollars of equipment left behind. I mean, I've seen figures that suggest, you know, almost 22,000 Humvees uh, were left behind. You know, dozens of Black Hawk helicopters. Many, of course, have been sabotaged and, and they don't have spare parts, but a significant amount of artillery, small arms and everything else left behind. So, you know, apart from that, and, you know, after 20 years of, of Western involvement collapsing in those two weeks, you know, and, and people having to be spirited out of the country. There is that uh, military side of things and the, and the equipment left behind, and there is the political ramifications as well. So it's worth having a section on, on embarrassment and long-term you know, political aspects of these, of these retreats. In some withdrawals, retreats, the conditions become very arduous. And in fact, that ends up being the thing they're really remembered for. An example is the retreat to Corunna in 1808 with the famous hero, General Sir John Moore. Yes, and that was one of those sort of typical military retreats that ends up having to go through mountain passes in freezing weather, malnutrition... Uh, the Brits had started out with an expeditionary force of some 30,000 and it had dwindled because of disease, because of starvation, because of uh, enemy attack. I mean, it was, it, it, it was a very arduous retreat and they needed to get to the coast in order to embark and return to Britain. And the rearguard action there was really at Corona itself. I mean, they, they, they held out against French forces and that was an operation uh, in which General Moore was killed and became this great hero. Um, poems were written about him, and the legend grew from that. And, and, and he always declared that, 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 that discipline was absolutely critical in that situation, a bit like the Spartans all those years before, you know, that, that, that maintaining discipline, fighting a rearguard action was, was vital absolutely critical in order to get the people off onto the ships and back to Britain. And they had to make some quite difficult decisions, abandoning their horses, but um, the, uh, particularly apparently the King's German Legion, the Guards, the 20th, 43rd, 52nd, 95th, and the cavalry all behaved with great discipline. And Sir John Moore himself was hit by a cannonball on his left side which pretty much did for him, although he didn't die immediately. Yeah, he, he, he wasn't going to survive that one. And, and this is the thing, if you're, if you're leading from the front, if you're in a, 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 a position in which you can be seen, and, and you can see you know, Wellington's position at, at Waterloo, he, he was equally vulnerable. So, you know, or, or an officer, a captain on the quarter deck of a ship, you had to be seen. Like the colours of your regiment, it was very important that you could be identified and people could rally around you. So you were always going to be vulnerable. And that sacrifice of the horses, given there was no feed for them, uh, there was no option uh, and there was no food for the men either. So it was, it was an incredibly difficult retreat. Another very well-known uh, retreat, at least the name of it is well known, is Mao's Long March, which took place in 1934-1935. Mm. 
Yeah, that was an incredibly difficult uh, retreat. You know, the communist forces were in danger of being surrounded by the nationalist forces, and they had to get away. So they moved 6,000 miles, uh, an estimated 80,000, uh, crossing 24 rivers, 18 mountain ranges. And, and it wasn't essentially one march with a load. And there's a lot of legend has grown up around yeah. it on, on Mao's uh, position and his importance in that march. And it, it was actually made up of subsets of people marching in that direction. And many say that it, it didn't have that many people on it, that people were very reluctant to go with him. But it did allow him to escape with retainers and a retinue of people and start again. It certainly allowed the communists to re-establish themselves. And so you see, you know, across history, these kinds of treks, these sort of terrible conditions that uh, partisans or, or military forces have to face in order to survive and regroup and reconstitute. There's always been a criticism in the Second World War that um, a lot has talked about what happened in the West in Europe and in, in Britain, um, and not much has talked about what happened in the Far East. Particularly, uh, we're going to talk about the Chindits and Operation Longcloth in 1943. Yeah, the Long Range Penetration Group that was sent in 3,000 of the 77th Indian Infantry Brigade were sent in to attack Japanese positions to, sh to show, to prove that Britain could take the fight to the Japanese, could fight in the jungle. And they weren't simply going to take sort of defensive positions along the Indian border, that, that essentially they had to retake Burma in order to force the Japanese out. So it wasn't going to be a passive war. And the Japanese proved extraordinarily good at jungle fighting. They believed that the West were bad at it. They had shown in Belair that the Allies were not good in, in defending Belair, and they, they thought they were up against an enemy that, that was no match for them. Uh, so, yeah, and they managed to use bicycles on jungle tracks as well. So this was an attempt by Wingate, commander of the Chindits, the Chindits, incidentally, are named after the Chinse, that, that stone lion, that, that upright lion that, that guards temples in Burma. And that was on their shoulder patch. So you know, that is what they were, they were created for. It was this, this, this special forces group that was there to, to really cause havoc in rear areas of the Japanese and, and not to face them in a conventional capacity. But this operation proved to be really, as a, as a starting point, was, was pretty catastrophic and, you know, could have killed the Chindits off in their infancy because they, they crossed the Irrawaddy River and they found that they were being boxed in by Japanese forces. So Wingate gave the command to withdraw, to retreat. And certainly in jungle conditions, you, you couldn't retreat in any meaningful, ordered fashion. It broke up into small groups and they fled. They had to run for their lives. And it was a serious problem. Many were killed. Many were taken captive. Uh, of an original force of 3,000, only about 1,500 made it back. 
and one group actually made it to China. You know, they were spread all over the place. Some were left with a few grenades and pistols to lie on tracks and fend for themselves. Others were left in villages. But those who were captured and survived had the most appalling time in, in, in captivity. And, you know, lessons were learned. There was a famous situation. Elephants were used in, in some capacity. And there was a famous elephant called Bandula, who, who who led the army out of a out of a situation uh, and became a complete hero. I mean, he's one of up to fifty elephants that were used at this stage of the war, and and led the men on this incredibly arduous trek. But it it was an impossible situation, an incredibly tricky situation. But lessons were learned of of what would happen in the jungle and how to retreat in the jungle. It, it it was it was very tricky, very arduous indeed, and and a lot of those men uh, travelled through the jungle for seven hundred to a thousand miles in in terrible situations. And of course, Wingate, who was the sort of inspirational leader, was uh, was killed in March nineteen forty four in an air crash in the jungle. Yes, but it's no coincidence that that Mad Mike Calvert, who was his uh, second in command on this mission ended up in the 1950s reconstituting the Special Air Service uh, that had been disbanded at the end of the Second World War. And the SAS, who, who are so well known today, and recognised today, they became formidable uh, and, and, and cut their teeth once again, like the Chindits, um, back in the jungle. They, they were in the Malayan um, situation, in the conflict there, in the 1950s. So... From this arduous retreat, lessons were learned. Jamie, you've already mentioned the arduous retreat of the German Wehrmacht in the Second World War uh, back from through Russia. But only five years after the end of that war was the Korean War in 1950. There was an extremely arduous withdrawal by the UN troops. Yeah, the, the question is to know when to retreat. I mean, of course, during the Second World War, one of the problems was that Hitler never liked to retreat. So you end up with Stalingrad situation where the Sixth Army was surrounded. And so from a, an army that was about 250,000 strong, 70,000 ended up surrendering. And of those, 7,000 survived. So, so you know, after Stalingrad, after the Battle of Kursk, you're talking from 1943 onwards, this, this terrible reversal of fortune for the Germans and this, this move back that ended up with the siege of Berlin and the collapse there. But come the Korean War, you also had terrible conditions that had to be faced by UN troops. And the chosen reservoir retreat is one of those great military moments that, that, that enter legend partly because it was a successful retreat, but partly it, it was through the most catastrophic conditions that you could imagine. What we like to call a fighting withdrawal. It was a fighting withdrawal. You, know, you had 120,000 Chinese troops uh, attacking 30,000 UN troops. A lot of those troops were made up by the US Marine Division. You quoted at the beginning uh, General Oliver P. Smith, that, that idea of advancing in the wrong direction. But it turned out to be the right direction. They were heading for Hung Nam, 78 miles away, and they had to get through the mountains, through this terrible 
temperature. I mean, it was what was it, Tom? It was something minus like, uh, thirty-eight, which is the same as as retreating from from uh, through Russia from Moscow would be. Yes, it, absolutely terrible conditions, and it was a fighting retreat because you know a thousand were killed in combat, you know, around four thousand wounded, but you had seven thousand casualties of frostbite. I mean, that's how bad it was. And if you look at the equipment that, that couldn't operate in, in those sort of conditions, again, it's so reminiscent of, of what happened to the Germans. You know, the Germans suffering through those Russian winters, you know, had to end up wearing fur coats sent from, you know, women's fur coats sent from Berlin. You know, they, they had no proper cold weather gear. Well, in this retreat, you ended up with... Uh, syringes, syringettes being put in medics' mouths in order to try and defrost them. You had blood plasma freezing. You had batteries not working. You know, engines weren't working. I mean, the, all these problems you get in in cold weather. And and you know, this was on this seventy-eight mile, you know, two-week retreat. It, it was utterly horrendous. But ultimately, it, it was successful. And, you know, of those 30,000 men, you know, you had over 20,000 sort of getting back in, in, in one piece, albeit, you know, with, with several thousand badly, badly crippled by frostbite and their wounds. And the amazing tenacity of the Chinese soldier, which um, although they were on the, uh, they were the enemy, they lost, uh, killed and wounded some 60,000, apparently. That's right. I mean, the, the, the Chinese have always been pretty profligate in their expenditure of lives. I mean, they're, it's, uh, they're, they're even more notorious than the, than the Russians in what they do. Because, you know, manpower is not their weakest link. It really isn't. Um, and, you know, Western forces tend to value the lives of their soldiers. Um, the, the, the Chinese do not. Which Although is what the, the, nowadays, of course, uh, things are changing with demographics, aren't they, both in Russia and China, and ageing population. That doesn't hold so much as, as it has in the past. No, but you always think that the Chinese have, have moved away from human wave tactics, uh, but we'll see. I mean, it certainly seems that the Russians have moved, moved away from uh, what even their men call meat waves. So yeah. we, we shall see what happens. Now we move on to the final part, catastrophic retreats. Perhaps even they could be called routes. And really one of the most catastrophic that some of us know about was Napoleon's retreat from Moscow in 1812. Yes, and we've, we've talked about the Russian retreat from Moscow and that really set the, the scene and really created the framework for Napoleon's later retreat, because we mentioned in, in our first section, there you have the governor of Moscow, Rostopchin, setting fire to the place, burning it down, Napoleon not being able to winter there, so he decides mid-October to, to leave. By so, that, so the Russians, they don't really retreat as such, they, they move out. Yeah, it is a withdrawal. They move out 2%... Of the 200,000 uh, civilian population are left in that city. So it, it has essentially been deserted. Napoleon is forced into this flight. He has to go back 
the way he came. He can't move south because he's got Russian armies either side. People like Kutusov, you know, encircling him. All the way back, he's being pursued by Cossack hordes that are picking people off. He's got under 100,000 people, Napoleon, by this stage. I mean, they are in a woeful condition. A month later, they are in the area of Smolensk. They cross the Berezina River. That's where pontoons were built. And all the way, Napoleon is shedding men. He has to create these sort of tactical feints to get across the river. He manages to escape. And after that, it's sheer panic and flight. And if you look at the statistics of how many men get back, well, you're talking, you know, 100,000 Frenchmen are killed, uh, 200,000 die from their wounds and their injuries and frostbite, another 100,000 are taken prisoner. I mean, it is cataclysmic. And he probably gets back with about 100,000, but 60 miles away from Vilnius, he decides to scarper. So he had form. Uh, he, I mean, in 1799, he had secretly fled Egypt and left his army behind. Well, this time round, he he flees for his own troops in order to get back early to, to Paris and try and manage the situation, manage the information war. You know, he knows that his future is on the line. I mean, it has been the most incredible cock-up in history militarily, and he got it wrong, and he's destroyed his army. And we've talked about the knock-on effect, the political effect of retreats, but this time, you know, you can go forward to 1815 and the Battle of Waterloo, and you can see that his army... Uh, really never recovered from from the Russian invasion. I mean, Marshal Ney, who led the cavalry at Waterloo, you know, he got out of Russia with only a thousand men. They were in a parlour state. By the time Napoleon reaches France, he's only got about twenty two thousand men with him. It, it, it was the most terrible catastrophe for for French might for Napoleon's reputation. He never recovered from that. In 1963, the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, handed over to Sir Alec Douglas Hume. He said to him, My dear boy, as long as you don't invade Afghanistan, you'll be absolutely fine. And it is a lesson to many nations, not only ours, that people get into trouble when they invade that country, as we know from very recent events. But in 1842, there was a particularly terrible retreat for the British. Well, as you say, Tom, everyone who gets involved in Afghanistan, it uh, turns ugly. And the great game in which Britain was involved, this, this competition against Russia, was really the reason that we sent an expeditionary force into Afghanistan at that time. And it went wrong. It really started with the murder of Sir Alexander Burns, who was murdered with his retinue um, in 1841. Um, that was when his house was attacked. He ended up doing that extraordinarily brave thing, knowing that he was going to be killed, of putting a handkerchief around his eyes and stepping out and being hacked into pieces. And his head being paraded through the streets on a pike. 
And so that's when the British knew that it was time to get out. So early in 1842, January 1842, they set out and there were around 16,000 of them. Of that, there were only 4,500 soldiers. Most of them were actually Indian sepoys and the rest were really camp followers. So it was very difficult to maintain any sort of discipline. You know, it was 100 miles. They were trying to get to Jalalabad. They set out from Kabul. They went through mountainous regions. And as the column became extended, as people started falling out, falling by the wayside, that's when they were being attacked. Um, the hill tribesmen, the Pushtun tribesmen, they had long-range muskets. They were taking pot shots all the way. Every ravine that was passed, the, 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 the troops were attacked. A lot of people were deserting into the hills. And as we said earlier, there are so many small unit actions along the way, this constant rearguard action trying to, to fend off pursuers to fend off the horsemen, the pushing horsemen that kept on attacking. And it was totally relentless. And the most famous action uh, captured in that, that famous painting is the last stand of the 44th, where 45 men of the 44th foot, armed with 20 muskets between them and only two rounds, fought almost to the last man. Uh, you know, they, they gathered round the, their colours and they fought and were cut down. It was the, the most extraordinary action. Their commander, Captain Souter, actually survived and he tied the colours, the yellow colours, round him as a waistcoat to, to try and allow the colours to survive. That was the priority. And actually in captivity... That he was treated was with, with, with sort of uh, deference because they thought that the the yellow of his of his garb signified that he was an extremely important, an important gentleman. And you know that um, in fictional terms, Harry Flashman um, was also on the retreat from Kabul um, and wins the Victoria Cross by fainting at the right moment, and the colours wrap around him, and he's discovered um, as he was trying to surrender. He's discovered by <laughs> by um, the relief forces wrapped in the flag um, as the only man left alive. Luckily, all the people who'd seen his cowardice were dead. It's a great, yeah. it's a great uh, story that one. But, but 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 that's fiction. The reality fiction. was just extraordinary courage, and uh, you know it's 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 amazing how you know those, those soldiers managed to mount this sort of fighting retreat. But, of course, they were picked off one by one. And what's incredible, after six days, the, the person who made it back, again, uh, captured in that famous picture uh, by Lady Butler, was was the uh, arrival of Dr William Bryden in Jalalabad on a pony. And he had actually managed to fight off a number of attacks. He was being pursued by horsemen. Just before he got to Jalalabad, he was spotted by uh, pushing horsemen, and they, they attacked him again, and he managed to survive that skirmish. And he and the pony were, were wounded, but he still managed to get back. And he was asked about the army, uh, what had happened to the army, and his reply was, I am the army. So it, it was the most extraordinary, if you're talking arduous, 
that is one of them. Um, shortly afterwards, catastrophic even it was. It was arduous, catastrophic, and embarrassing all in all in one go. And it was certainly catastrophic. A, a few days later, uh, a British officer did appear uh, with with a, a, a small retinue of, of survivors, but there were very few that came out of that retreat. Gulf War One happened in the early nineties, um, and in February of nineteen ninety one. The war came to a culmination on the 25th to the 27th of February with the famous incident on Highway 80, the Highway of Death. General Norman Schwarzkopf, who was the Allied commander, had this to say in the follow-up. This was a bunch of rapists, murderers and thugs who had raped and pillaged downtown Kuwait City and now were trying to get out of the country before they were caught. They certainly were murderers, rapists and thugs. It's always, it's always been a bit contentious. You've had a lot of people saying this was wrong, it, they were sitting ducks. Well, sometimes military targets are sitting ducks and just because they're retreating doesn't mean they're not a, a legitimate target and they were a legitimate target. Uh, 28 tanks or more were taken out, 2,000 other vehicles, uh, many of the military were taken out, and the goods that were strewn around showed that so many of those soldiers, uh, a thousand of them, uh, it said, uh, were cramming those vehicles full of goods. They had simply looted. Uh, I know people who actually visited that highway to help clear it up after a bit, and they said it was pretty catastrophic. A lot of Cluster bombs have been used, cluster munitions, but but it shows that if you can cut off a retreat, if you do have the weapons available both to stop it going further and to attack it from every direction, then that retreat is going to end in a cataclysm for those who are engaged in it. And and it it sort of sent a message to Saddam Hussein. Um, he didn't always learn from it, of course, uh, being a despot, but it was certainly an indication of Western firepower and what would happen in the future and could happen in the future. And those sort of precedents throughout history show that you know once there's a rout, once people are, are fleeing, then you are in trouble. And it's fair to say that the Iraqis were in no position at all to mount a fighting retreat, an effective retreat that would guard them against air attack. They simply were in no position to do that. Uh, they were fleeing and they were routed and they were fair game. So there we have it, different categories of desperate retreat. We've covered types of withdrawal that deliver the army or what's remained of it into a state where it can fight and live another day, embarrassing ones, arduous ones, and the final category, something you don't want to get caught up in, the okay. catastrophic retreat. Absolutely right, Tom. I mean, you know, they are pretty rough categories, but it, it just shows that across the sweep of history, there are so many different sort of actions and so many retreats that, that, that really go from deliverance to catastrophic and, and many areas in between. But I think what stands out are really the small unit actions along the way. And, and those are the stories that you really remember. You remember what happens to those 
small units, those famous last stands along the way, and you remember to the, the commanders what happened to the commanders at the end. And so often it is the beginning of the end for those military leaders, those commanders that have taken monumental risks without thinking it through. And if they're political leaders, it's so often the end of their regimes, the beginning of the end, and they can't reconstitute their armies in time to fight their decisive and, and, and final battle. So how are we going to weave in our postscript, Jamie? Well, I think we might go back to the Napoleonic era and, and rather than look at retreat, look at the catastrophic advance, the, 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 the advance into battle that doesn't quite work out, that actually rebounds on the person carrying it out. And so I thought we'd go back to the Battle of Trafalgar 1805 and look at a commander who was late to the battle and deliberately late to the battle, and that is William Carnegie, the 7th Earl of North Esk. And he was in the Windward Column. He was uh, purportedly, supposedly, uh, with... Nelson. Nelson, of course, led the charge in HMS Victory. And you can see what happened because the Earl of North Esk ordered his men, his ship on HMS Britannia to shorten sail so he wouldn't get to the battle in time. And here again, you have that historical precedent because what you find from the Spanish Armada onwards into the Napoleonic Wars is that quite often aristocrats don't make good naval commanders. It's the middle classes, those who want to seize prize, those who want to make a reputation, who do well, who have that attacking sort of urge in them and, and that attacking genius. Whereas someone like the Earl of North Esk, being an aristocrat, he didn't want to get into the battle. So if you look at the casualty rates of, say, Nelson's flagship HMS Victory that was in the vanguard that ended up fighting the Ray du Tarbes and with the fighting Temeraire, the other uh, Royal Navy warship that came up on the other side of the Ray du Tarbes. There was Victory suffering 57 dead, 102 wounded. You look at HMS Britannia, at the end of the battle, it had suffered 10 dead and 42 wounded. So you can see the difference. When you lose 10, that's about the average size of a gun crew on a Royal Navy ship of the line. So, you know, you can see the difference. But the upshot is, even though he was court-martialed, the Earl of North Esk managed to end up being buried eventually beside Nelson and Admiral Collingwood uh, in the crypt of St Paul's Cathedral. So, yeah. We've talked about retreats, and here we talk Shock about... Shock horror. Yeah. It's here. better to be a knob. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here we're talking about the slow advance, which can often be equally humiliating. Fantastic. Well done. Well, it's, it's certainly true that you should avoid a rout, and you should probably avoid a retreat if you possibly can. Sometimes a fighting withdrawal can give you what it what is needed for you to eventually win victory. But often it's the case, it is better to live and fight another day. And often it's littered with our bloody object, a skull, all the way along the line of retreat. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. Please subscribe on BVH 
on your podcast app and it really helps others to hear about us if you leave us lots of stars and a review. You can find us on our website at bloodyviolenthistory.com. For suggestions and comments, you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. <laughs>